Hey. Welcome to PNN. I am Brooke Hines, your host. It is Sunday, April 18, in the year 2021. Got a show for you tonight. Janine Moloff did an epic uh, justice report on these murderous police and how uh, there are laws on the books that are enabling these uh, um, murders and uh, enabling their cowardly accomplices. So that's coming up in the second part of the show. It is a longer justice report because we are responding to all of the really awful news from this week. Of course, we've got the uprising around the Derek Chauvin trial. We're waiting for a verdict and there's all kinds of stuff just boiling over with regard to that. But we also had this week... A 13-year-old child, Adam Toledo, was murdered, flat-out murdered. We uh, it, This happened a while ago, and the video was released on Thursday. And the prosecutor had been saying that uh, the child had drawn a gun. And the video that they had from their body cam and from third-party footage, so there was more than one angle, Definitely showed that the child did not pull the gun. He was just murdered straight up by the police. So that happened in Chicago. So we got Chicago, we got Minneapolis, we have ongoing uprising conflicts in LA, we have uprising conflicts ongoing in Portland, and you know, just really all over the place. So, you know, this week could be interesting. Of course, it's uh, the 18th of April. That means in two days, it will be uh, 420. And that is, you know, the international celebration of weed. So, you know, at least we have that to look forward to on Tuesday. Okay, I have promised for a while that I would get out this, I'm going to push out this second part of my supercharged McCarthyism series. I, uh, you know, talked about this before, but I got, I got a flare. I did three stories all in a row. Um, uh, you know, in addition to my client work and I overextended, I ran out of spoons. They would say, in the spoony community. I ran out of spoons and have had, I've been laid up with a fever for a week and a half, two weeks. But it looks like, fingers crossed, that's getting behind me. And uh, did some editing on the piece today. Looks like I'll be able to let go of that by tomorrow. One of those deals where I had a lot more of the piece finished than I thought I did. And, uh, you know, you just get to this point where, you know, if there's, especially if there's physical fatigue, it's really hard to get back into it and crack it open again. But we did that. So that's all good. I have a fun story I'm going to share with you. Fun in quotation marks. I think it's fun because it ties together a lot of stuff we've been talking about for the last couple of years. So, uh, hang on. We'll be right back with that. Hey, 
so this story has um, really made me happy this week. Um, not happy, happy, but like happy, like, uh, you know, when you find out you've been right about something and, uh, you know, you kind of feel good about that. I'm talking, of course, about the uh, Russia bounty stories. Uh, so if you'll remember last year, June 26, I believe, Donald Trump, this is right around the time Donald Trump wanted to announce that he wanted to bring the troops home from Afghanistan and that he wanted to have them back back here by, uh, by the end of the year. And uh, on June 26, 2020, the New York, New York Times announced an unnamed American intelligence official's American intelligence officials, rather, have concluded that a Russian military intelligence unit secretly offered bounties to Taliban-linked militants for killing coalition forces in Afghanistan, including targeting American troops, unquote. The New York Times called it a significant and provocative escalation by Russia, <laughs> though no evidence no evidence of this at all whatsoever. It was reported on and re the reporting was reported on and everybody was quoting the same damn people and nobody actually did the work of a reporter and seek out any corroboration for this story. So just so we're very clear here, what this is, is the CIA writes a press release, a statement that accuses the Russian military intelligence of offering bounties to, to kill American troops, and the bounties are being paid to the Taliban. It really doesn't get any worse than that. And American reporters are just eating it up with spoons. Um, you know... It uh, it doesn't it doesn't look good. It, it definitely doesn't look good. But in addition to not looking good, it really doesn't sound good. Check this out. Here's uh, Rachel Maddow on the Russia bounty story. It's one level of bad to realize that Russia is doing this, right? That the U.S. intelligence has concluded that Russia is paying cash money to people for killing U.S. troops. That is very, very bad. But it's a whole other level of bad to know that the U.S. president has known that Russia was doing that for four months, and during that time, he's chosen to do nothing about it. That is a whole other level of crisis. So, you know, right there, you've got a quite an escalation on top of a lie. You've got the lie, the original one, that um, that the CIA, you know, passed over to the media, this original lie that Russians were paying bounties to kill American troops. And there you've got Rachel Maddow just building it out, you know, kind of like how when you move into an apartment and you expand to fit, you know, she was moving into this story and expanding all over it to fit into it. All kinds of color there. She was painting the walls. Now, part of what's wrong with that is that 
nobody has any trust in the media anymore. And it would have really been nice if the rejoinder to Trump's, uh, quote, fake news stuff, if the rejoinder to that would have been a news media that turned around and said, no, we are going to fact check everything and we are going to have super corroboration on stuff. And if they had doubled down on just plain old editorial protocols, they did the opposite. Instead of doubling down on editorial protocols, they doubled down on each media outlet having its own outlook and being perfectly comfortable with spreading the propaganda of their favored intelligence sources. So there's a lot of ex-spooks that are serving as media figures at this at corporate in corporate media outlets like MSNBC, CNN, uh, during the Trump years, uh, you know, it used to be that uh, people whispered about Operation Mockingbird, where the idea there is much more subtle. It was that uh, that the military was using certain, or the intelligence services were using certain outlets overseas to plant stories that they could then launder back into American media, into domestic media. This is not that. This is actually having spooks on the payroll of MSNBC and CNN and these other outlets and ABC, CBS, NBC, anybody who still watches those broadcast networks. They're actually on the payroll. And some of these names are pretty familiar. You got John Brennan, James Clapper, Chuck Rosenberg, Michael Hayden, Frank Frank Fugluzzi, Fran Townsend, Stephen Hall, Samantha Vinograd, Adam McCabe, Josh Campbell, Asha Rangappa. I'm slaughtering these names. Phil Mudd, James Gagliano, Jeremy Bash, Susan Hennessy, Ned Price, Rick Francona, Michael Morrell, John McLaughlin, John Cipher, good name, good name for a spook, John Cipher, Thomas Bosert, Clint Watts, that guy is a freaking nut, uh, James Baker, Mike Baker, Daniel Hoffman, Susan Rice, Ben Rhodes, David Priest, Evelyn Farkas, Tony Blinken, familiar name, Mike Rogers, Alex Finney, and Malcolm Nance. That's just to name a few, all right? And a lot of those, now I know a lot of those names are familiar and ought to be familiar. Malcolm Nance is familiar. Of course, John Brennan, James Clapper, and Tony Blinken are familiar. They're on the payroll. That's not cool. If you can... (laughs) kind of grok from where I'm going with this. That's not cool. So, you know, the much maligned Glenn Greenwald. Everybody's pissed off at Glenn Greenwald these days. But you know what? Every now and then, because Glenn Greenwald is is who he is, you know, he's he's that old, you know, uh, First Amendment lawyer kind of guy. 
you know, this is his beat. This is where he really shines. And his piece this week on this entitled Journalists Learning They Spread a CIA Fraud About Russia Instantly Embrace a New One. So he gives a really good rundown of what happened this week, and it's pretty amazing. So <clears throat> you got that backstory with, uh, you know, June 26, 2020, and the initial lie. Well, so this week, this week, and the reason why we even know this is uh, that lie became inconvenient and we needed to tell a new one. And this is major gaslighting territory. This is this is such crazy making. This is the kind of stuff that if it happens in families, you know, at some point you're either going to do a lot of therapy or get a couple of lawyers. Uh, so let's let's break this down. That Russia placed bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan was one of the most discussed and consequential news stories of 2020. Greenwald starts out. As it turns out, most of it was baseless. Or all, uh, As it turns out, uh, one of the most baseless, as the intelligence agencies who spread it through their media spokespeople now admit, largely because the tale had fulfilled and outlived its purpose. Though no evidence was ever presented to support the CIA's claims, neither in the original story nor in the uh, reporting sense, most U.S. media outlets blindly believed it and spent weeks, if not longer, treating it as proven, highly significant truth. Leading politicians from both parties similarly used this emotional storyline to advance multiple agendas. So... This story appeared, coincidentally or otherwise, just weeks after President Trump announced his plan to withdraw troops from Afghanistan by the end of 2020. That's when pro-war members of Congress from both parties and liberal hawks in the corporate media spent weeks weaponizing this story to accuse Donald Trump of appeasing Vladimir Putin by leaving Afghanistan and being too scared to punish the Kremlin. You know, it's a it's a it's a narrative that is so familiar at this point and you know, you can just <clears throat> feel your way around it, you see it coming, you know, they start to talk about Russia, they start to talk about Trump and you know, it it expands again, expands to fit the contours of, you know, everyone's darkest corners of their psyche you know everything that he was doing was to benefit russia oh my god you know just it just multiplies and and uh you know spreads out he goes on uh cable outlets and the op-ed pages of the new york times and the washington post endlessly discussed the grave implications of this russian treachery and debated which severe retaliation was needed. Nancy Pelosi herself said, quote, this is as bad as it gets. Then candidate Joe Biden said Trump's refusal refusal to punish Putin 
and his, and his casting doubt on the truth of the story was more proof that Trump's entire presidency had been a gift to Putin. And then uh, Senator Bill Sass of uh, Nebraska demanded that, in response, the U.S. put Russians and Afghans in body bags. Nobody at any point sought the facts in this. They just took what the CIA said at face value. All they had was an anonymous leak from intelligence officials, just quote unquote intelligence officials, which the New York Times on Thursday admitted came from the CIA. So there's a dynamic there's a dynamic that goes on with the media and the CIA and Glenn Greenwald lays it out in this uh, um, overarching rule. He calls it. Here's this rule. When the CIA or related security state agencies tell American journalists to believe something, we obey unquestionably. And as a result, whatever assertions are spread by these agencies, no matter how bereft of evidence or shielded by accountability-free anonymity, they instantly transform in our government-worshipping worldview into a proven fact, gospel, never to be questioned, but only affirmed and then repeated and spread as far and wide as possible. That's the dynamic. Now I grew up with this in the during the Cold War, and we experienced it again after 9-11, and then in the war and terror in Iraq. I'm really tired of it. I, I, this, is, this is no way, this is dystopic. You know, this is no way to live. As the CIA became one of the leading anti-Trump hashtag resistance factions... This is one of the sickest things I've ever seen in my lifetime. The CIA and the Democrats teaming up, teaming up to undermine and subvert the presidency. I don't care if it was Donald Trump or, or who it was. That's You don't want to set the precedent where the CIA is welcomed domestically to undermine our own executive branch vote the motherfucker out that's what you get to do you don't get to use the cia domestically against our own government i'm sorry and we've got a lot of work to do to clean up the mess that is left behind in this because uh, all of these people are still, you know, carrying on, you know. But this story continues. It is not an exaggeration to call it a merger. That there is a merger between this bond between the corporate press and the intelligence community is more is deeper than it ever was. Uh, so much so that a parade of former security officials from the CIA, NSA, FBI, and uh, Department of Homeland Security have been hired by media outlets to deliver the news. And it's a partnership where these media outlets hold them up at 
they're not behind the scenes. They're not on background. They're held up in the open and proudly. And that long list that I read to you are, is, you know, just a just a smattering of the of the spooks involved in this. So the first goal of this story served was to weaponize it in the battle waged by pro-war House Democrats and their neocon GOP allies to stop the withdrawal plan from Afghanistan. I guess just because it was Donald Trump. I mean, it, in a way, they, they, in the way, these neocons in the Democratic and the Republican Party weaponized Donald Trump throughout his entire presidency. So the neocon Democrats and the neocon Republicans uh, come together and use this CIA New York Times story to uh, build a narrative that went something like this. How can we possibly leave Afghanistan when the Russians are trying to kill our troops? We can't leave Afghanistan. We got to stay there. And as a matter of fact, we should have more money. We need more money to stay there and uh, fight, fight Russia. I mean, like they're, they've pretty much taken down the wall of Afghanistan. That's, that's no longer masking this. You know, what they're saying is they want to go straight after Russia. So this Russia story, uh, Russia bounty story was used to pump up the military budget that is now at a record-breaking $740 billion. Uh, that was scheduled to be approved by the House Armed Services Committee in early July of that year. In a joint statement with Representative Mac Thornberry of Texas on June 29, a few days after the New York Times story appeared, Liz Cheney proclaimed that, quote, we... We remain concerned about Russian activity in Afghanistan, including reports that they have targeted U.S. forces. One of the Democrats' most pro-war House members, Representative Ruben Gallego of Arizona, announced on July 1, three days after the New York Times story, his own amendment to stop or block any troop withdrawal from Germany inciting increasing Russian ingress aggression. On July 1 and 2, the House Services Committee held its hearings and votes. Uh, this was all on C-SPAN. There was 14 hours of it. Uh, over and over, the union of pro-war Democrats and Liz Cheney-led neocon Republicans steamrolled the anti-war faction of the left and right-wing opponents led by Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard, and Matt Gates, who repeatedly used the Russia bounty story to justify continuation of the longest war in America's history. Now, this is important. And I want you to hear this part. Here is a speech from Representative Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, who also ran for uh, president. Um, this is illustrative of how the CIA story was used in building up, increasing the military budget. Got with the Taliban, a deal that's already falling apart. But now we learn that he was making this deal at the same time as there were bounties on the heads of American troops. 
American sons and daughters. We clearly need more oversight over what the President is doing in Afghanistan. I'd like to see the longest war in American history come to a close as well. But I don't want to see it, to see it come to a close at the expense of our national security or at the expense of our troops. Now, the U.S. media was somehow more militaristic and blindly trusting of this CIA story than even this pro-war union of lawmakers. That the CIA's leaked claim to the New York Times should even be questioned at all, given that it was leaked anonymously and was accompanied by exactly zero evidence, is not something that even crossed the minds of any of these journalists in any of these outlets. So this week on Thursday, the Daily Beast reported that, uh, or they were the first to notice, that, quote, the Biden administration announced that U.S. intelligence only had low to moderate confidence in the CIA's story from the very beginning. The Daily Beast added, quote, that means the intelligence agencies have found the story is at best unproven and possibly untrue. The Guardian also reported that, quote, U.S. intelligence agencies only have low to moderate confidence in reports last year that Russian spies were offering Taliban militants in Afghanistan bounties for killing U.S. soldiers. MS or NBC News went even further, citing Biden's campaign attacks on Trump for failing to punish Putin for these bounties and noting, quote, such a definitive statement was questionable even then. They still have not found any evidence a senior defense official said Thursday. So you see in that MS or in that NBC report, you see there that they're starting to turn a little bit on Biden here, which is interesting. So what makes this admission particularly bizarre, aside from rendering weeks of decrees from media figures and politicians, uh, is that the Biden administration continued to assert this claim as truth as recently as Thursday, on the very same day that the Daily Beast article came out, when announcing new sanctions aimed at Moscow and diplomatic expulsions of Russian diplomats, primarily in response to allegations of Russian hacking, the White House said, quote, it was responding to reports that Russia encouraged Taliban fighters to injure or kill coalition forces in Afghanistan. The White House, the official White House announcement of the retaliation said explicitly that, quote, the administration is responding to the reports that Russia encouraged Taliban attacks against U.S., and coalition personnel in Afghanistan based on the best assessments from the intelligence community, parenthetically IC. A claim for which the IC itself admits it only had, quote, low to moderate confidence. And so, and so here we are. There is no evidence for this media laundered CIA story. Um, 
And now they're wanting to do something different with those troops. They're wanting to move some money around. They actually have a bigger budget now than they than they even did during uh, Trump's last year. And so Greenwald points out that, again, NBC News got out in front of this story. You know, they, they didn't go so far as to, uh, you know, d- d- find evidence or anything but what they did find in september of last year was uh some some grumblings within the military two months after and and here we go here's the quote two months after top pentagon officials vowed to get to the bottom of whether the russian government had bribed the taliban to kill american service members the commander of troops in the region says a detailed review of all available intelligence has not been able to corroborate the existence of such a program this is from the military on the ground in afghanistan General Frank McKenzie, commander of the U.S. Central Command, told NBC News that it just has not been proven to a level of certainty that satisfies me. McKenzie oversees U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Seems like he would have been a good person to talk to way back in June when all of this first started, but they waited till September until that uh, money went through Congress. Uh, the general says they continue to look for that evidence and he just hasn't seen it yet. So in Greenwald fashion, usual Greenwald fashion with, with his flourish and flair, he says, that's what, that was what made the refusal to question the story all along so maddening. Not only was no evidence presented to support the CIA's assertions, something that by itself should have prevented every real journalist from endorsing its truth. But commanders in Afghanistan were saying months ago that they couldn't find convincing evidence for it. That is what the Daily Beast meant in Thursday's report when it said, quote, there was or there were reasons to doubt the story from the very start, unquote. Not just the lack of evidence, but also the, quote, initial stories emphasized its basis on detainee reporting and the bounties represented a qualitative shift in recent Russian engagements with Afghan insurgents. Now, that's a lot of military kind of, you know, uh, language there. But basically what it's what they're saying is that that. uh it didn't make any goddamn sense to them. MSNBC, or rather NBC, sorry, NBC News on Thursday also said that, quote, such a definitive statement was questionable even then. NBC, again, the only ones who actually, you know, kind of tried to do some kind of journalism. But, <clears throat> I mean, if you really examine that and you pull it apart... What they were doing was uh, getting contacts within the military to buttress or to uh, intersect with what the intelligence community was saying. So they got the CIA is on their payroll already, and they're already getting that story. So they were like, well, let's just talk to the to the generals on the ground, see what they say. And, you know, that's that's still not 
preferably what we should be looking for in reporting and in investigations because that's just picking up the phone and making a call. Um, but at least it's something, you know. There were doubts. There were doubts all along. And yet you still got all of this just over-the-top, hyperbolic, you know, uh, uh, oh, well, just listen for yourself. Check this out. In our worldly today, President Trump dismissing the Russian bounty intelligence story as a hoax meant to damage him and Republicans. The president often touts his relationship with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. The, the White House also responding tonight to a bombshell report accusing Russia of offering bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. And now... By the way, this is a uh, mashup uh, here. And uh, it, just to give you a, a, a smattering of the kinds of uh, responses that, that we were seeing in the media at the time. This reporting in the New York Times, which has since been confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, that not only does the president know that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths. News, get this, the Washington Post is now reporting that the alleged Russian bounties to Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are believed to have resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. All right, it just goes on and on. The uh, the hyperventilating. If you were alive and you know near a television at the time, you couldn't you couldn't avoid it. Um, but you know here it is in all its glory. Now that we know a little bit more of the truth, and you know we still don't know, we still don't know the whole dang truth. Uh, all all we know is that this isn't the story that they're going with now. Um, you know, it's, it's becoming the job of media consumers to be the skeptics that reporters should, should have been, should be, and they aren't right now. So now it's, now that is falling onto us. And that is a lot to ask of just regular people to be skeptical of, you know, everything that they're seeing on the news and everything that people are talking about and so on and so forth. But here we are. And this is what I've talked about for so long being a crisis of reason. You know, this is a, this is an epistemological problem. It's a philosophical problem. In addition to just being a, a practical pain in the freaking ass when there is no reliable media and nobody can agree on, you know, whose version of the truth is the right version. You know, you, you can't, you can't have a society that functions with a, an ongoing crisis of reason. Listen, the, 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 the age of reason, the enlightenment was a different kind of uh, was 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 a a crisis of reason of its own, right? It it was a response to leaving behind the authority of the church and moving towards the the uh, authority for what is true being within uh, humanity. That's you know, the 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 
TLDR uh, version of the Enlightenment. And uh, right now we have a problem where similarly there is a rejection of the scripture that is coming out of uh, news media. We can't really use that anymore. You know, you've, you've still got the fanatics that are clinging to their, uh, you know, different branches of the church, shall we, shall we say, you know, the MSNBC branch or, you know, maybe they're like Baptists and the uh, CNN seems kind of Methodist to me, maybe, I don't know, Fox is definitely Pentecostal, um, but we're not really cool with that. Something's really, really wrong. It's a very dysfunctional relationship, and that is going to lead to some pretty messed up stuff happening. I don't know what, you know, nobody knows what. Nobody knows what's around this corner, but, you know, if you just do the math on nobody agrees on what is real and what is not real, uh, that's going to come to blows at a certain point. That's the kind of thing that happens when things start to fall apart. And I think everybody knows this, actually. I don't think that this is uh, um, too out there. I don't think that this is foreign you know, sounding. I think we all kind of already know this. If you think that upon learning yesterday's news that there was any self-reflection on the part of media figures who spread this or that they felt chastened about it in any way, you would be very, very wrong. In fact, not only did few, if any, admit error, but they did exactly the same thing on Thursday about a brand new evidence-free assertion from the U.S. government concerning Russia. They mindlessly assumed it true and then stated it millions, stated it to millions of people as fact. They are not embarrassed to get caught spreading false CIA propaganda. They see that as their role. So, you know, I think we all have this this image of of reporters as being kind of schlubby and you know going after the story and the story is the most important thing and that they're after the truth and yada yada yada. What we're seeing here is that just simply isn't the case. They can be told in the morning to report a story that affects our military budget. You know, which goes to the highest levels of, of government to report it one way and in the evening being told the exact opposite and then being like, oh, okay, whatever. On Thursday, the U.S. Department of Treasury, run by Biden's secretary, Janet Yellen, issued a short press, press release about its targeting of Russian-Ukrainian political consultant, Konstantin Kalimnik, with new sanctions. One sentence of this press release asserted a claim that the Mueller investigation, after searching for 18 months, never found. All right. That's this is this is, you know, kind of mind boggling right here. So in the midst of all of this, walking the one story back and asserting a new version of it. Now, now they're bringing up Kalimnik 
who is connected to the whole Ukrainian side of this Russian situation. Now they're bringing Kalimnik up again. One sentence of this press release asserted a claim that the Mueller investigation, after searching for 18 months, never found. They asserted a claim that wasn't in the Mueller report. So they're saying that Kalemnik provided the Russian intelligence services with sensitive information on polling and campaign strategy. And that this was information that he received from then Trump campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Now the thing, the, the thing about Kalemnik and I'm not sure if it's in this article or not, but the thing about Kalemnik is that there's evidence that he was actually on the state department's payroll. Kalemnik, it looks like he was working for the United States as a spook in Russia. And, you know, he got drawn into this whole thing with, uh, 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 with Trump because his little corner of things is Russia, Ukraine and all of the oil interests in, in that part of the country. And so he, as a, as a state department asset, uh, his job was to make sure that we got information from the Russian side on the pipeline and everything going on over there. And, you know, so that everybody was informed. And now they're bringing Kalemnik up again as this big bugaboo. And Janet Yellen, of all people, issued a press release on it. Now, is it true that Kalemnik passed this polling data to the Kremlin? Maybe. But there is no way for a rational person, let alone someone calling themselves a journalist, to conclude that this is true. Why? Because like the CIA tale about Russian bounties, a claim they learned yesterday had no evidence, there is nothing more than a government assertion here, and it lacks any kind of evidence. And you can see exactly what they're trying to do. I brought up Ukraine in the beginning of this whole talk because there, there's a reason for it. What, they're, what we're doing is we're moving the focus of conflict from Afghanistan to Ukraine. And they need to be moving assets there. And they need to be moving our, our attention over there. Because that's where they want to start a war with Russia. As with Kalimnik, what, what would be... Do we assume somehow that, that, that Russia can't read 538? Do we assume that, that, that Russia has, has, is unable to read polls that are reported in American news and, and all over social media constantly during the presidential election? I mean, holy crap. Polling data? Really? That's not sensitive material. It's not classified material. That's not military material. That has nothing to do with national security. Polling material, you can go to, you know, any one of dozens of websites that I'm sure there uh, you can get from Russia or as a Russian person, you can read Nate Silver's bullshit just as easily as I can. And good luck to you with that by the way, um, polling data is not highly secure information. So what? So what if polling data got, got uh, 
sent around in, in Russia. That, that it doesn't mean anything. Part of being able to assert a claim, uh, or part of being able to to assess a claim, is to be able to assess if what it's actually uh, asserting has any significance. You know, is it in any way necessary or sufficient that 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 polling data would be uh, uh, problematic, or 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 would be problematic for Russia to be uh, aware of? Uh, it's it's not like troop movements. It's it, it's not you know diplomatic cables. This is this is polling data, and remember. This was never proven in the Mueller report. And there's ample evidence that Kalimnik has been working for the U.S. State Department for quite some time. Kalimnik is the one who, by the way, disappeared when all of this uh, stuff started going down. People thought that he was in uh, Italy for a long time. He's a very shady character. Um, kind of interesting stuff there. The long and the short of this is we have got to be better consumers of news. We have got to be more critical of the claims that are being pushed around in media and on social media. And we have to be able to uh, uh, measure our uh, our assessment of what is good information and what is bad information on our own. And... I said this earlier, I think that that's a lot to ask of Americans who can, you know, barely, who can barely take care of ourselves, essentially. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We've got our kids at the house. You know, everything is temporary and up in the air. And, you know, we're, we're hoping these vaccines are going to work. We had a lot on our plate. Uh, the last thing we need is to have to, you know, be our own reporters, and so on. And, uh, and also, word to the wise, uh, also be our very own social media uh, policeman. Because I got to tell you, there are days when it feels like I'm on Twitter.com with 53 other real people and I'm surrounded by 53 billion billion with a b 53 billion uh bots you know accounts that are uh you know run centrally and uh, again that'll be in the new supercharged mccarthyism i got a new angle on this there's some good information coming up gray zone did a really good piece on k hive this week uh, written by matt orfla so you need to check that out um but let's wrap up this greenwald article and this whole thing on russia he says let's express this as clearly as it can be expressed any journalist who treats unverified stories from the CIA or other government agencies as true without needing any evidence or applying any skepticism is worthless. Actually, they are worse than worthless. They are toxic influences who deserve pure contempt. Every journalist knows that governments lie constantly and that it is a betrayal of their profession to serve as mindless mouthpieces for these security agencies. 
This is why they will vehemently deny they do this if you confront them with this accusation. They know it is a shameful, a shameful thing to do. But just look at what they are doing. It's exactly this. They are not, these are not journalists. They are obsequious spokespeople for the CIA and other official authorities. They're not your friends. Even when they learn that they deceived millions of people by uncritically repeating a story that the CIA told them was true, they will, on the very same day that they learned this, do exactly the same thing. This time with a one-paragraph Treasury Department press release on the Kalimnik thing. These are agents of disinformation. They are state media. And when they speak, you should listen to them with the knowledge that what they really are are spokespeople and treat them accordingly. And so I feel like this is a piece of a larger tendency or a larger narrative you know, so you have all of this dishonesty in the realm of foreign policy and whether or not we're going to have a war in Ukraine versus a war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, the, the answer is we are always going to have an always war somewhere. And uh, it seems to you know, be headed towards Russia regardless. And appreciate how that kind of power that they're exerting over foreign policy, appreciate how that is applied to domestic policy. And ask yourself whether or not you think that these same kind of lies and the same kind of behavior might be uh, part of the reason why we can never get a $15 minimum wage or why we can't get Medicare for all, uh, or even more darkly, why they're going to likely cut Social Security, yeah, on and on. We, we aren't treated with any dignity or respect. And I think that, that you know, one of the reasons why I appreciate Greenwald's uh, approach to this sort of story is that he he. He approaches it with the, the kind of anger. I, I mean, you can tell that he's infuriated by it. And, and, and that's absolutely appropriate because they're treating us like chumps. And worse than chumps, they're treating us as a commodity. We are that which they can extract value from and nothing else. So that's a dangerous position to be in as a human being. Uh, especially during a pandemic when, uh, you know, our economy is basically run on um, services such as providing health care for people or making sure that there's uh, food around and stuff like that, making sure that people can have their Zoom meetings. Uh, you know, we are we are basically keeping each other alive long enough so that we can run up big bills at a hospital and I guess die in debt. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this 420, to this uh, international uh, celebration of weed this week. Uh, after this particular story, we're all going to need it. Um, I wish I had something happier to end on, but I just don't. So, you know what? Let's just be okay with that. Let's just uh, move into 
the next phase. We'll be back in just a moment with Janine Maloff and the Justice Report. All right, let's welcome Janine Moloff with this week's Justice Report. This week, Janine is looking at policing in the USA, a force of paid, legalized murderers, and their cowardly accomplices. Thank you, Brooke. Yep, that, that's the title this week. Um, we have a lot going on. You know, when you think of these names, George Floyd, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Duane Wright, um, to, um, to the Toledo child, Michael Brown. These names all bring certain pictures to your mind. But one thing they all have in common, besides being people of color, is that they were all murdered by police-ordered executions. And that those, or, those police-ordered executions have spurred on massive protests. These executions by the police should be illegal but they're not. In fact, they're protected by law. And what I found out was they're protected by law in some instances, all the way up to the SCOTUS of the Supreme Court. This also includes police brutality and abuse against journalists, which are the fourth estate. And people wonder, well, you have a press credential. Why would the police target journalists? Well, that's as old as the idea of empire itself. Uh, the, reason the reason journalists are targeted is because when you have an, um, a rising police state, those same police forces do not want credible witnesses blowing the whistle on their many crimes, whether they're legal or not. They don't want the public to find out that though some of this may be technically legal, it is most likely unconstitutional and shouldn't be legal at all. So let's move on. So the first thing is about the journalists. We know there's, especially in Minnesota, there's a lot of massive protests that have been going on all weekend. We're waiting for the, the verdict in the Chauvin case, um, you know, in terms of the murder of George Floyd. Um, we're looking at uh, Officer Potter that's that's been um, arrested as well for a needless murder of Duante Wright. And so USA Today, among others, but they did a very good article by Adriana Rodriguez. And the headline is, police in Minnesota round up journalists covering protests, force them on the ground and take pictures of their faces. And this is something we're familiar with in my hometown of St. Louis during the Ferguson protest. Uh, we had press from all over the world, even the reporters from Fox were abused and an attack by police, and they were probably the most shocked. So this article, they're talking about there was a protest in a Minneapolis suburb just, you know, this past Friday night, and the journalists covering it, they were clearly wearing the press passes, were basically subjected to the following. They were forced from their stomachs by law enforcement, rounded up, 
and they were only released from police custody after having their face and press credentials photographed by the police. Frankly, this brings to my mind, uh, you know, some 80 years earlier when Nazi stormtroopers demanded papers, Judy. So, as I said, the Minnesota police violated, I have to say this again, I have to reiterate this, violated a judge's order just hours after it was issued. A judge issued a temporary order which expressly barred the Minnesota State Patrol from using any sort of physical force or chemical agents specifically against journalists. And this was based on court documents. So once again, the press is attacked by police. Police know that a strong free press can expose police criminality, both to the public and the courts. And this is the court of public opinion. They don't want that. So the Minnesota State Patrol's feeble excuse, they issued a statement. And the statement was, quote, Troopers checked and photographed journalists and their credentials and driver's licenses at the scene in order to expedite the identification process, end quote. By what legal right do, does any police force in the United States have to interfere with the press and identify whomever? They don't. This is the First Amendment. You also have the right to free public assembly. Again, the police violated a whole bunch of things, not just this judge's order. Now, the article goes on to say that there were some journalists who were, quote, detained and released during enforcement actions after providing credentials. And they want to say no journalists have been arrested, end quote. End quote, excuse me. My, my remark is, so what? They, these, some of these press members, they weren't just pushed onto the ground. Slamming somebody to the ground on their face as you order them on their stomach should be a crime in instances where there was no physical danger. Minnesota police know that their actions serve as a very real threat, and this is routine behavior for far too many cops who, yes, are rightfully seen as thugs and gangsters as opposed to legitimate officers of the law. So demonstrators, specifically in the Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, were protesting the police execution of Dante Wright, 20 years old. Um, some 500 protesters uh, showed up uh, around 9 o'clock. Uh, there was some sort of incident which allegedly triggered police where they started using chemical sprays and irritants, tear gas, pepper balls, projectiles. Um, and that was reported by, uh, let's see, Jasper Colt, who's a photojournalist with USA Today Network, reported. Um, after about some 30 minutes, law enforcement, you know, ordered protesters to leave. There was a lot in a loudspeaker announcement and their rationale was the police called the demonstration, quote, an unlawful assembly. What is the criterion for unlawful assembly? Where in the Constitution does it say that? Well, so a lot of the crowd did leave. Few num a small number remained and media were still there. Uh, Jasper Colt was quoted as saying, quote, a lot of journalists like myself were slow to leave the area. We didn't think we needed to. We wanted to cover what was happening. End quote. <clears throat> and Colt described how the police not only corralled the protesters and media into one group, but then he, they screamed to them, get, get flat on your stomachs. Face it, police attack journalists, as I said earlier, because they don't want any actual credible witnesses to to their act, to criminal acts. And police did single out journalists illegally. 
Okay, law enforcement identified media, and they put them in a line where, again, they were asked for their credentials and identification. I question the constitutionality of that as well. But, again, these guys figured the cops are the one with guns. We better do what they say. So Jasper Colt for USA Today also reported that Minnesota State and local police were both involved in this. Uh, the loudspeaker announcements came from the sheriff's department. Now, the court order that the police violated was part of a complaint filed by the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. And this was after journalists told them that they were targeted during protests um, sparked by the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and as I said before, this is exactly what I myself and many of my friends and colleagues witnessed and endured during the Ferguson protest. Police violently attacking and arresting journalists, protesters, and even legal observers, stunned from the National Lawyers Guild and the ACLU and other groups. Even though they were wearing the green hats and all that, made no difference. Um, so the Minnesota State Patrol figured they could get around what the judge ordered, so they issued what they called guidance to the troopers and other police departments, and the guidance highlighted orders in the temporary restraining order, um, and it, was, it also prohibited arresting, quote, it prohibited the police from, quote, arresting, threatening to arrest, or threatening or using physical force, end quote, against members of the press. Okay. And so the Minnesota, here's a quote, uh, the Minnesota State Police will not photograph journalists or their credentials. However, troopers will continue to check credentials, so media will not be detained any longer than necessary. In addition, MSP, Minnesota State Police, will no longer include messaging at the scene advising media where they can go to safely cover events, end quote. Okay. So, you know, once again, they violated the court order. They thought they got around it by saying we're just checking credentials, except the cops did take photographs. And this looks too much like in an earlier incarnation when media was embedded with the military during the early days of Iraq. You can't embed with the military or with the police and still be an independent press force. You just can't. And so the ACLU said that what the Minnesota State Police and other departments did Friday was a direct violation of the temporary judge's order to quote Adam Hansen, who's an attorney with Apollo Law, who's working on the civil case with ACLU Minnesota, quote, the emergency order requires law enforcement to take certain steps to protect journalists. The order requires law enforcement to leave them alone. We absolutely see what happened last night as a violation of the court's order, and we're doing everything we can to make sure that it doesn't continue tonight and on into the future, end quote. Maribel Paris Wadsworth, who's president of USA Today Network and publisher of USA Today, also issued a statement condemning the uh, Brooklyn Center police, quote, we condemn the actions of the police in Brooklyn Center in the strongest possible terms, Requiring journalists to lie prone on the ground and photographing their credentials are purposeful intimidation tactics. To be clear, we will not be intimidated or deterred in fulfilling our First Amendment right and responsibility to hold power to account in our reporting, end quote. There was a freelance photojournalist from European Press Photo Agency named Tim Evans. Um, and earlier in the, in the week, he said that officers tackled him to the ground, punched him in the face, 
and sprayed him with a chemical irritant while he identified himself as media. Um, he said that, you know, he showed the police his press credentials. He had a badge, he had a press sticker that was on his backpack. Uh, but the officer knelt on him to zip, to zip tie his hands behind his back. This man also had a camera around his neck and another one was on his shoulder when he was tackled. So basically, this European, uh, this, this uh, photojournalist freelance from a European agency was tackled George Floyd style, knelt on his neck, and, zip, and his hands were zip tied. He was clearly identified as press, and if it hadn't been for the fact that he was wearing protective gear, goggles, a respiratory mask, and helmet, he would have been badly injured, maybe killed. And uh, Evans was quoted as saying, quote, it's egregious, it's horrific. We are nothing as a society, as a democracy, without a free press, and it's constantly being challenged and constantly being abused, end quote. Uh, Evans also saw police spray two photojournalists from agency France Press, with a chemical irritant, and this is an international agency. Um, there are photos that have gone viral on Twitter. The Minnesota State Patrol, quote, encouraged journalists to contact the Department of Public Safety's Internal Affairs Affirmative Action Division to, quote, file a complaint if they believe a trooper is engaged in misconduct, end quote. Yeah, and, you know, there's really such a thing as being a little bit pregnant. Yeah, right. Uh, the agency went on to say, quote, the MSP Minnesota State Police has not and will not target media for doing the important work of showing those who are exercising their First Amendment rights to express themselves or those who are engaged in this in the violent, illegal activity law enforcement is trying to prevent, end quote. Okay. But when they're trying to prevent something, that's not the same as actually committing the crime. The Constitution says you cannot be arrested and detained because you might commit a crime. doesn't work that way. Even the mayor, Mike Elliott, called out the police and said, quote, gassing is not a human way of policing, end quote. So this was in USA Today. Furthermore, the Associated Press also contributed. So let's talk now about police accountability, which is the main part of this report. But it's important that we show how the police are still targeting press, trying to intimidate them, abusing them, arresting them for actually doing their job, and nothing has changed since the days of Michael Brown. So this is a, um, a paper by Katherine Hawkins, and it was uh, published by POGO, which is the Project on Government Oversight. And it's in a section of POGO labeled accountability. So just as, and this was just as past October of 2020. This is a report on police and government wrongdoing, again, by Katherine Hawkins. Katherine Hawkins, in terms of her background, excuse me, is a senior legal analyst. She focuses on national security, immigration, and human rights. Previously, she was a policy counsel and investigator for the Constitution Project. She was also a National Security Fellow for Open the Government. She's one of the leading experts on the U.S. government's use of torture after September 11th. She's published extensively on that subject. Uh, she has a B.A. in political science from Yale and a J.D. from the Harvard Law School. 
So the title of this POGO report is Unqualified Impunity. When government officials break the law, they often get away with it by Katherine Hawkins. And so she goes on into the video of George Floyd's death, which is truly horrific, and the protests. And yes, Officer Derek Chauvin is being prosecuted for murder. It's true. And he's in custody. That's also true. But that's very rare. And we're going to discuss why it's rare. Now, Kentucky, also she mentions in this first paragraph, made a recent decision, and that was as documented by ABC News, that they were not going to bring homicide charges against the officers who killed Breonna Taylor. And this is more the case. In fact, the truth is that most of the time when law enforcement behaves in brutal ways, either is extremely unnecessarily violent or murders, they don't face criminal charges even when there's video evidence clearly establishing their guilt. In fact, frequently there's no consequences at all. And you think, well, how can that be? We're going to get into that. Here's the thing. According to this report, I'm going to quote, quote, when police officers, prosecutors, and other government officials break the law and violate people's rights, they often get away with it, end quote. And then she lists different cases, like their Border Patrol agent, Jesus Mason Jr., um, shot and killed a 15-year-old boy, according to southernborder.org, and he wasn't prosecuted or disciplined. Okay, that's bad enough. Get this. The Supreme Court ruled last year that the boy's parents could not sue. I'm going to say that again. Border Patrol agent Jesus Mesa Jr., Shot and killed a 15-year-old boy. These were migrants. Not only was he not prosecuted or even disciplined, but the Supreme Court ruled last year during the Trump administration that the boy's parents had no right to sue. So this also includes, when the Supreme Court said you can't sue, it includes CIA personnel with a torture program as well. Most of the individuals that are responsible for establishing and maintaining the CIA torture program, like in Gitmo, faced zero consequences. And that was according to humanrightswatch.org, a report titled No More Excuses, Roadmap to Justice CIA Torture. In fact, one CIA employee who actually supervised torture and evidence destruction leads the agency as of October in 2020, and that was documented by JustSecurity.org. That's really scary. So not only torture, but evidence tampering. And the list goes on. The fact is, when police officers, prosecutors, or any other government official, for the most part, break the law, when they violate your rights, my rights, they not only get away with it, but there's legal force to back them up. So let's talk about it. According to this report, a lot of misconduct by law enforcement would routinely be considered crimes. Assault, aggravated assault, murder, and manslaughter are all crimes under state law. There are also violations of civil rights. And when your civil rights are violated by government agencies, by a government agent, they're federal felonies in it, documented by Cornell Law. 
So what's, how are they still getting away with this? Well, even though there's lots of laws against egregious police misconduct, many police officers evade charges, much less convictions. And it's, and it's rare they're charged, even rarer they're convicted, even in cases of homicide. And that was as documented by 538.com. A lot of other acts of misconduct that don't rise to the level of crime, they're subject to internal discipline, but those investigations are basically worthless. Now, there's a group called the National Police Misconduct Recording Project. Um, excuse me. Uh, they analyzed some 8,300 truly credible cases of accusations that it's a police misconduct against uh, some 11,000 police officers. So I'm going to say it again. A group called the National Police Misconduct Recording Project analyzed approximately 8,300 credible accusations of police misconduct against nearly 11,000 officers from April of 2009 through December of 2010. And they found that only 3,238 resulted in any legal charges. Of the officers charged, only 33% were convicted and only 12% were actually incarcerated. Now you compare that to normal defendants, 68% of ordinary felony defendants that, that are charged are convicted and 48% are incarcerated. But the legal rules governing use of force by police and civilians are very different. Civilians are forced to obey police at all times or risk the charge of, quote, resisting arrest. Yes, you can be charged with resisting arrest if you disobey whatever a police officer says. Okay. Even when the arrest, quote, is unlawful and civilians resist without violence. That's according to bostonreview.net. So if you disobey what a police officer tells you to do and the arrest is clearly unlawful and you resist without violence, just say, no, I'm not going to do that. Yes, they can charge you with resisting arrest, even though there's no foundation for it. And many civilians just don't have any idea. Why, why should we have to obey police at all times? All right. Isn't this a formula for abuse? How is it resisting arrest when you disobey a cop, but no arrest has occurred yet? He's just telling you to do something. You haven't been arrested yet. So how can you say that he's resisting? You're res how can the cops say you're resisting arrest when no arrest has actually occurred yet? But just when you thought you had a right to self-defense as a civilian, think again. Civilians, police officers can use deadly force in self-defense. And all, have to, all they have to do is claim that they reasonably fear that they may be in danger. May. Civilians can't do that. In fact, civilians can't claim self-defense at all, hardly at all. Uh, in most states, on-duty police officers cannot be considered aggressors, even if their actions create or escalate a dangerous situation. And that's according to George Washington University Law School. Okay, so Timothy Lohman was found that he acted in self-defense when he shot 12-year-old Tamir Rice. And he shot Tamir Rice within two seconds of arriving at the park. And Rice was playing with a toy gun. He did not face charges. Now, 
For similar reasons, though, Officer Brett Hankinson did face charges for shooting into a neighbor's apartment during the raid. So cops receive special procedural protections. Um, because part of us do their union contracts, as well as local regulations, and then a whole spate of law enforcement Bill of Rights statutes, which was covered by the Marshall Project. And they place definite limits on any internal investigation of police misconduct, um, including limits on, I'm sorry, excuse me. So criminal civilian defendants do not have these rights. Cops can institute long delays before the officer in question has to make a statement. And officers, police officers also have the opportunity to review evidence before being interviewed. If you or I get arrested, we don't get that. We're never, almost never provided access to evidence before char being charged. And sometimes we never get discovery at all, especially if you plead guilty. Now the report talks about the infamous blue wall of silence. We've all talked about it. We all know about it. Um, excuse me. This one, basically, there's retaliation against whistleblowers. And this is one of the reasons why police departments throughout the nation cannot be trusted to internally investigate or to regulate the conduct of their own members. It won't happen. It's, it just won't. And you have officers that claim that though they behave properly, they will not turn in officers they know commit violations. So they are granting license to it. And the delays between a use of force and an investigation, especially when fellow officers are remaining silent, that gives opportunity to, for cops to coordinate their testimony gives them opportunity to pressure witnesses, gives them opportunity to potentially tamper with evidence. A civilian who engaged in coordination such as this, coordination of testimony or talking to witnesses would definitely be charged with witness tampering and or obstruction of justice. When cops do it, it's not a problem, okay? Then, besides cops, you have prosecutors, according to this report, that are also pressured to not charge uh, officers as well. Brown University professor Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve and an ACL, ACLU attorney, Samil Trividay, um, also explained that, quote, police officers are prosecutor star witnesses, central to the prosecutor's ability to earn the convictions that are so essential to their conception of public safety and professional success, end quote. Prosecutors may also help cover up police misconduct, and there's several ways they can do it and have done it. One, uh, as documented by the appeal.org, these are with Brady violations, they, prosecutors can unlawfully conceal evidence of police misconduct, not only from defendants, but from the defendant's attorneys. Prosecutors may file, quote, excessive or redundant criminal charges against defendants, end quote, and that's known as stacking charges. And why do they do that? So they can pressure defendants that have been victimized by police brutality into pleading guilty to avoid a long prison term. Okay, it's an intimidation tactic. It's 
also an abuse of their licenses. Uh, prosecutors also can see to it that defendants who plead guilty relinquish their ability to challenge several of the forms of misconduct that police have shown during the trial or on appeal. Okay. Now the feds could step in, but they don't. They could step in and implement changes against, I'm, I'm sorry, implement charges against public officials under the crime that is called, quote, deprivation of rights under color of law. I guarantee you nobody's heard that on law and order. So in theory, the feds could step in when local prosecutors refuse or fail to hold police accountable for misconduct. And the federal government has the authority to prosecute both local and state-level law enforcement for this crime of, quote, depri deprivation of rights under color of law. And federal prosecutors, they don't have that same dependence on police like the local prosecutors do. But in terms of reality, federal government just doesn't do this. And part of it's because the statute that, quote, criminalizes deprivation of rights under color of law requires a higher standard of proof than in most criminal cases, end quote. So prosecutors have to prove that a defendant willfully violated the law. You just love this loosey-goose type language. But in most criminal cases, prosecutors only need to prove that a defendant acted, quote, knowingly or, quote, recklessly. Okay? So if a defendant knew they broke the law or maybe they were reckless about it, that's all the prosecutor has to establish. But to criminalize deprivation of rights under color of law, the prosecutor has to prove that the defendant, in this instance, the police officer or another prosecutor, willfully violated the law. In other words, they knew the law, they knew, uh, and they, 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 with premeditation, decided to violate it. Now, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review conducted an investigation, and they found that the, the DOJ refused to bring charges in 96% of police misconduct cases that they received between 1995 to 2015. Now, other crimes, the same DOJ declined to bring charges to a level of 23%. That difference right there is pretty damning. Government statistics compiled by a group called Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, they documented that between 1990 to 2019, DOJ uh, filed civil rights charges against law enforcement on average, only 41 times a year. Last year in 2020, federal prosecutors brought only 49 criminal cases against law enforcement, quote, for violating civil rights out of a total of, get this, of over 184,274 federal criminal cases. So in 2020, Federal prosecutors just brought only 49 criminal cases against law enforcement for violating civil rights from a grand total of over 184,000 federal criminal cases. If this isn't evidence of collusion, I don't know what is. Criminal charges brought against prosecutors who violate people's rights just doesn't happen. 
We've talked about this on the show before. State bar associations rarely sanction prosecutors when their behavior is unethical or illegal even. Even in cases where courts find that a prosecutor committed misconduct, nothing happens. Nothing. Um, This is another national disgrace at the level of the Banana Republic. DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility, that's the office tasked with investigating misconduct allegations against DOJ attorneys, releases such a small amount of information to the public, according to The Intercept, that we can't know whether prosecutors are ever disciplined as a result of these investigations, and that's according to POGO. Uh, And it was a report in 2014 titled Hundreds of Justice Department Attorneys Violated Professional Rules, Laws, or Ethical Standards. We have a right to this information. We have a right to know if federal prosecutor is basically violating the law. And there's suits for damages, right? Wrong. Once again, the crap known as qualified immunity slithers in. And this is a defense that, again, the Supreme Court created in the 1960s, and it has expanded dramatically in recent years. So qualified immunity is an excuse that basically keeps uh, civilians from successfully suing police or other public officials. It goes all the way back to the Civil Rights Act of 1871. Yeah, that long So the Civil Rights Act of 1871, and it's codified at 42 U.S.C. 1983, basically says that, quote, anyone who uses their state or local government position to violate a person's civil rights can be sued for damages, end quote. That's pretty clear, and it seems reasonable. But, and Civil Rights Act of 1871, think about it. Not too much long, not too long, much longer after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. So don't tell me racism didn't play into this because, of course, it did. The Supreme Court of SCOTUS decision in 1967, in the middle of the civil rights battle for, for civil rights and voting rights for blacks, SCOTUS decision in 1967 ran interference for police. The SCOTUS said that state and local police officers sued under Section 1983, under that same Civil Rights Act of 1871, could have a, quote, a defense of good faith, quote, and, quote, probable cause defense, end quote, for arrests that courts later said were unconstitutional. So what does that mean? An officer could be sued civilly, and they could have that civil lawsuit dismissed. And all they would have to do is claim that they sincerely believed that, they were, that their actions were proper. They just have to say, oh, I, I really believe that what I did was right. That's all that's needed. And then it's just dismissed. But if that wasn't bad enough, the SCOTUS Supreme Court ran interference for police again in 1981. This is the infamous Harlow v. Fitzgerald case. In this one, the SCOTUS said in Harlow v. Fitzgerald that instead of having to prove, to prove good faith at a civil trial, 
public officials, quote, could get cases dismissed at an earlier stage as long as, quote, their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known, end quote. Okay, so exactly what constitutes the category clearly established rights? Well, it gets worse. The shameful SCOTUS standard that enshrined qualified immunity. In order to say that you had a clearly established right that was violated, the SCOTUS requires plaintiffs to point, quote, to point to a judicial precedent with similar enough facts to put the statutory or constitutional question beyond debate, such as such that all but the plainly incompetent would understand their conduct was illegal, end quote. So basically, plaintiffs would have to have enough facts to basically say that the statutory or constitutional question was so violated that only someone who was clearly incompetent would not understand that they, their, what they did was illegal. And cases are very different. That's a much harder standard to make for the plaintiff, for the person that's been abused by police. Courts have also granted qualified immunity even in cases of blatant illegality. And there's some examples here. In recent years, courts have ruled that police were entitled to civil immunity, not only when they stole hundreds of thousands of dollars, but when they did the following, quote, knocked a, knocked a nonviolent person unconscious. Two, shot a 10-year-old in the knee when they were aiming at a dog. Three, sicked a dog on a suspect who had already surrendered. And four, locked a naked prisoner in cells covered with raw sewage and human excrement for six days, end quote. All those actions, the court said, the police that, can, that perpetrated these abuses were entitled to qualified immunity. Now, courts have said, yes, if there was an obvious violation of rights and quality, qualified immunity doesn't mean that officers can't be sued. Okay, my response is, if no actual precedent exists, okay, that is similar to the case presented, then there's no case. Okay, so we're going to go into this a little more. But this is basically saying that they have to have, basically, they're, they're, it has to be so obvious that it would be obvious to anybody. Okay, now our recent SCOTUS ruling made things worse. Uh, and this was as reported by SupremeJustia.com. Hard to get courts on record regarding what counts as a rights violation. Well, how can you sue you if the courts won't say what constitutes a rights violation? If the courts won't, won't list the criterion even. So are rights violations based on, I don't know, is it John Roberts' time of the month? What? So... Before the ruling, courts had asked two questions when they evaluated this type of case. First, they had to see if the conduct in question by the police officer actually violated a right. Then they also had to find out if it did violate a right. Then they have to ask whether that, that official should have known the conduct violated the right. Okay? 
So basically, before this recent decision, they had to say, okay, did the cops' actions violate a right? And if it did, should the cop have known that this violated a right? It seems reasonable, but in 2009, the SCOTUS ruled that if there wasn't a previous case with similar or identical facts, then the court could stop their analysis immediately. And that was documented. Um, they don't even have to examine whether the conduct violated a right. And we've discussed this before on the show. This deals with the requirement that the case of alleged violated rights has to reflect established precedent with nearly identical facts or the facts of the case have to be, again, virtually identical to establish precedent. This is a total miscarriage of justice. All the police have to do is keep their mouth shut. No case happens, which means in the future, no precedent for the SCOTUS to consider, and the SCOTUS kicks the case out for having no standing to sue. And if this sounds like nonsense, it, it is, but it's really what they're saying. It's basically, you have to have precedent that is virtually identical to the case being brought before the court or there's no case. And think about that. If there's no cases accepted by courts because there's no previous legal, no, no legal precedent, then there's no precedent that's ever established beyond past rulings. And under this situation, even the old Dred Scott ruling would have been held as legal and beyond judicial challenge. That's what's happening. So since then, there was an investigation conducted by Reuters, okay? And they found that federal courts of appeal are dismissing incredible numbers of civil claims without even evaluating whether there was a constitutional violation. Again, I call this return of the Dred Scott rationale. No precedent and no case. Under this refusal by the SCOTUS to consider constitutional violations, which is their effing job, police are granted a license to abuse, torture, and kill, and prosecutors are granted a license to, get to let them get away with it. It's not just me saying it. Fifth Circuit Justice, I'm sorry, Fifth Circuit Judge Don Willett calls this all out as a catch-22, okay? Judge Willett said, quote, plaintiffs must produce precedent even as fewer courts are producing precedent. Heads, defendants win, tails, plaintiffs lose. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves issued a recent opinion, criticized this doctrine of qualified immunity, said that basically it gives government officials what he called a major procedural advantage. Um, and that's because immunity is... Uh, basically supposed to be given to the officer at the, quote, earliest possible stage, end quote. And according to, the, according to Judge Reeves, quote, it affords government officials review by at least four federal judges before trial. Okay, end quote. So then you have on top of it, and this, it seems like it goes on forever, doesn't it? I, I admit it. On top of police getting qualified immunity, and never being held to account either criminally, it seems, or civilly, you also have, in addition to that, the bogus judicial doctrine of absolute immunity. And this doctrine of absolute immunity absolves prosecutors of any potential wrongdoing. And, you know, judges 
have said that prosecutors are entitled to this absolute immunity from civil suits. It doesn't matter if they acted in bad faith. It doesn't matter if prosecutors, quote, knowingly broke the law to secure convictions, end quote. It was written in, in a uh, dot, uh, I'm sorry, according to the Marshall Project, according to, quote, federal courts, this absolute immunity even applies to severe misconduct like, quote, falsification of evidence and the coercion of witnesses, the solicitation and subordination of perjured testimony, the withholding of evidence, or the introduction of illegally seized evidence at trial, end quote. This is a blanket license for, for what can only be called prosecutorial crimes. We saw that in St. Louis, all right, with the Ferguson prosecutor. He's not there anymore, but we still have absolute immunity, and there is no right to this. So this is clearly a license for, pro for massive prosecutorial crimes. Even in the most egregious cases of massive injustice with civil, civil abuses, so for instance, in New Orleans, the New Orleans um, District Attorney's Office, this is the case of John Thompson, in 2011, the Supreme Court overturned a jury award of $14 million in damage, damages to John Thompson. Now, John Thompson uh, basically was wrongfully convicted by the New Orleans District Attorney's Office. Thompson spent 14 years on death row. He was convicted of a carjacking and a murder. Weeks from his execution, an investigator found a piece of microfiche, according to, as documented by Slate. And this microfiche demonstrated the prosecution had, quote, ordered a laboratory test on the bloodstains of the carjacking victim's pant leg and shoe. And the results ruled out Thompson as a suspect. Okay. The prosecutors in the New Orleans DA has basically knowingly hid the blood test results as documented by the Washington Post. They also hid other what's called exculpatory evidence from the defense for years. These are blatant constitutional violations, blatant professional ethics violations. It was documented that New Orleans prosecutors had a pattern of these violations under District Attorney Harry Connick Sr. And Connick basically admitted under oath as again documented by Slate, that his office provided zero training to prosecutors on their obligation to, quote, disclose evidence to the defense. Okay, they shouldn't need insert, that's basic law. But the Supreme, so this man was wrongfully convicted of carjacking and murder. He is weeks from his execution, all right? They, they found out that the prosecution hid evidence that proved that he couldn't possibly have committed the crime. DNA evidence. Okay, ruled him out as a suspect. Prosecution hid other evidence from the defense for years. So he got out of jail, thank God. This innocent man who suffered unbelievably. He won his lawsuit at the local level. 
But the Supreme Court said no lawsuit. But the Supreme Court overruled the, the win that this man had because Thompson, quote, couldn't prove that the prosecution team was, get this, deliberately indifferent to his rights. Can't make this stuff up. I don't know where the Supreme Court gets these phrases. Whether there was deliberate indifference, as they call it, to me is irrelevant. When there was clear evidence, when there was clear evidence tampering, how is evidence tampering not an instance also of deliberate indifference? But apparently since this man couldn't prove there was deliberate indifference in this miscarriage of justice that nearly cost him his life, he doesn't get the award by, that was given to him by the lower court against the very prosecutors that deliberately tampered with evidence, deliberately um, withheld evidence that nearly, they nearly executed an innocent man. And Mr. Thompson himself wrote afterwards explaining, quote, I don't care about the money. I just want to know why the prosecutors who hit, who hit evidence sent me to prison for something I didn't do and nearly had me killed, why they're not in jail themselves. There were no ethics charges against them, no criminal charges, no one was fired, and now, according to the Supreme Court, no one can be sued, end quote. So, and, and it's harder to sue federal officials than it was even for that. But this is the miscarriage of justice that we're dealing with here. There's other cases too. We can't go through all of them, it's, but I'm just going to go over them quickly. Um, there's no lawsuits that can be filed. Uh, for instance, well, let me go back, okay? It's harder to sue federal officials even, all right? And that's, again, more Supreme Court rulings. In 1971, Bivens versus six unknown federal narcotics agents. Escota um, said that in some cases, the Constitution, quote, implies a right to sue for what they consider serious rights violations, but only if there was nothing else, no other remedy available. And again, that doesn't leave you with much. In 2017, a case called Ziegler versus Abbasi. The SCOTUS again ruled that Muslim immigrants rounded up after 9-11, they were, you know, illegally imprisoned in solitary confinement, physically abused, whatever. They had no right to sue under Bivens. None. Um, there was a case, Hernandez v. v Mesa. The SCOTUS voted five to four. They threw out a lawsuit against a Border Patrol agent for shooting and killing a 15-year-old Mexican child named Sergio Adrian Hernandez Bereca. Parents had no remedy. Um, and then you've got precedents that make it extremely difficult for nonviolent protesters to hold federal law officials, law enforcement officials accountable for violating their constitutional rights, such as tear gassing them. Um, once again, there's just the SCOTUS keeps finding more and more ways to shut the courtroom doors to civil plaintiffs. And it's not done by accident. Another reason why we need to increase the number of justices on the SCOTUS. Um, so it just goes on and on and on. And now we come to the police chokehold case. 
than what everyone's talking about. How do cops get away with that? Again, another Supreme Court decision, 1983, the city of Los Angeles versus Lyons. Case facts, Adolf Lyons stopped for a traffic violation in 1976. He tried to do what the police asked him to do. Officer put his arm around his lion's throat, choked him to the point where he's unconscious. Um, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall did dissent, thank God. Um, but the majority ruled against the uh, against Mr. Lyons. Um, L.A. authorized police to use chokeholds in situations where suspects had had resistance. It was absent any evidence that officers were at risk of death or serious injury. Um, the lower courts did issue preliminary injunctions against the chokehold policy, but the Supreme Court overturned the lower courts once again. Um, the Supreme Court said that even though Mr. Lyons had been a victim of the policy in the past, since he couldn't prove that he was in particular danger of being choked by the police in the future, he didn't have a case. And you can put the blame on Supreme Court Justice Byron Wright, who wrote the Byron White, excuse me, wrote the majority decisions for that. And Justice White wrote for the majority, said that in order to have standing for an injunction forbidding chokeholds, Lyons would need to allege the following. Either that all police officers in L.A. always choke any citizen that they happen to encounter. Doesn't matter if, you, if this person was going to be arrested or receive a citation or for questioning, or that the city ordered or authorized police officers to act in such a manner. It's an impossible standard to meet. Okay? So you go on and on and on, and then we go back. We're going to end soon with habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus is such an important right that we have. It's sometimes known as the Great Writ. This all deals with police and prosecutorial abuse. In fact, habeas corpus is actually one of the only individual rights guaranteed in the original text of the Constitution, even before the Bill of Rights. And it basically says that people whose freedom or liberty has been taken away by the government, they have the right to go to court, claim that they're being held illegally because they're innocent or their rights were violated, at trial or the rights were violated during appeals. And habeas is supposed to get this. Habeas applies to any person detained by the government, whether at the state or federal level, and get this, regardless of their citizenship status. So yeah, if you are undocumented, no, the government doesn't have a right to deny you habeas. Well, that's what it used to be, and then it changed. In 1996, during the Clinton administration, Congress weakened habeas corpus with the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96. Get this. They, Congress administered this law that, in part, takes away a constitutional right, but they did so without a constitutional convention. And isn't changing a specific right or even any small detail in the constitution doesn't that require a constitutional convention but they did it and so under the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act in, and this was summarized by 
uh, journalist and criminal justice expert Radley Balco. In order for a defendant to get a new trial based on factual evidence and new evidence, a defendant has to do the following. One, they have to show that they have new evidence. Two, they have to show the evidence could not have been discovered at the time of the trial. Three, the defendant has to show the new evidence would probably result in a different verdict. And four, the defendant has to file their claim based on the new evidence within one year of the time that the evidence could have reasonably been discovered. If you're already, already in custody, that, that particular level of requirement is almost impossible to meet. Okay? It just is. Um, in most cases, prisoners furthermore have to meet this standard of this 1996 law without any right to an evidentiary hearing. And without an, ev an evidentiary hearing is needed because that's where a court can uncover new facts and add them to the record of a case. So no evidentiary hearing, then it's almost impossible to add new facts and correct the record. Courts also can't review issues that a plaintiff failed to raise in state court, even if the defendant had to challenge their conviction without a lawyer's assistance. Um, so, and again, the Supreme Court has backed this up and interpreted that the writ should be denied, okay? Um, under this law, courts can't grant the writ of habeas unless the state's decision was, quote, contrary to or involved an unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. The SCOTUS is interpreted mean that the writ should be denied. Even if the state court was incorrect or an error, okay, and it, it doesn't matter. And this is in both death penalty and non-capital cases. Um, this law has prevented prisoners with, quote, strong claims of actual, illness, actual innocence from challenging their convictions. And this was as documented by University of Pennsylvania Law School. The odds of overturning a wrongful conviction under this law are just almost impossible to meet. Then in 1996, you also have another law which limits habeas rights, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. Again, the Constitution makes no such exception, but it limits habeas rights for non-citizens facing deportation. And that's what allowed expedited removal, without a hearing, a lawyer, or any judicial review. Okay? And the SCOTUS recently upheld this action, even though the U.S. Constitution makes no such habeas exceptions. All these original doctrine jurists, but they can't see that. So this paper ends with some suggestions to fix this situation. You know, just when you think, God, there's no help, there's no hope at all, the police are corrupt, the prosecutors are often corrupt, and the Supreme Court just doesn't seem to care. They have, POGO has, Project of Government Oversight has some suggestions. Here are their suggestions. One, I'm reading directly from the paper. Um, one, Congress should end qualified immunity. Two, Congress should amend the Civil Rights Act of 1871, Section 1983, to create a cause of action against federal officials who violate individuals' rights. Three, 
Congress should pass legislation that authorizes lawsuits against police departments, prosecutor's office, and municipal governments for their employees' violations of individual rights. Four, Congress should pass legislation that gives the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division subpoena power in its investigations of whether law enforcement agencies have engaged in a pattern or practice of violations of constitutional rights. Um, six, I'm, I'm sorry, um, five, Congress should amend the criminal prohibitions in federal civil rights laws to allow conviction of an official who deprives an individual of their rights intentionally or recklessly rather than willfully. In other words, shut that loophole. Six, Congress or the executive branch should require the compilation and release to the public of information about deaths in custody, use of deadly force by law enforcement, and misconduct by law enforcement agents and prosecutors. Seven, Congress should repeal the limits on habeas corpus and the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96 and the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 96. Eight, Congress should enact legislation limiting the state secrets privilege by requiring disclosure of relevant classified evidence to judges and to opposing counsel, uh, so on and so forth. Skipping ahead here. Nine, Congress should pass legislation authorizing the Justice Department Inspector General to investigate allegations of misconduct by Justice Department lawyers and reporting the findings of misconduct to state bar associations. 10, the U.S. Attorney General should order the Justice Department's criminal division to protect the rights of criminal defendants by A, reducing the overuse of pretrial detention in federal cases, B, ensuring that all guilty pleas are knowing, voluntary, and made with effective assistance of counsel, C, adopting formal policies regarding prosecutors' constitutional ethical duty to timely disclose favorable evidence to the defense, and D, improving oversight over detention conditions in federal prisons and in private and local jails holding detainees, the U.S. Marshals Service. So in conclusion, there's a lot going on here. That's a lot to take in. But here's the deal. The ongoing police brutality witnessed in the U.S. has a long history. It's a history that is uh, systemically supported by systemic prosecutorial abuse. The POGO teams outlined several reforms that have to occur, but before we push for those reforms, we need to understand what can only be called the, judi the judicial Ponzi scheme that we laughingly refer to as the judicial process. Historically, the SCOTUS or Supreme Court has assisted in limiting reform measures which would hold police, prosecutors, and other government agents criminally and civilly accountable. These supreme priests of the hidden words must also be held accountable. Finally, the violence aimed at the press is not an accident, nor is it the actions of a few rotten apples. Police nationwide do not want credible witnesses to their many crimes, many of which are spurred on by the evil we call racism. We have to support the press and encourage them to ask the impossible questions. We have to demand an end to the press embedding with the military and the police. We have to have a meaningful fourth estate because without it, we have no chance of perhaps for the first time establishing any meaningful sense of democracy. It, look, it doesn't matter who's president. When we have massive lawlessness coming from the ironically named law enforcement officers, We've heard this warning time and time and time again. And as I've said before, the black community suffers the worst injustices of everyone else here. And as such, they are the, official, the unofficial barometer. They are the political canary in the coal mine. 
when the coal miners let, let the canary down in that open air cage to see if it was safe to progress forward. If the cage came back and the bird was dead, they knew it was unsafe. If the cage came back and the bird was alive, they could progress on. The black community and communities of color, they are the political canary in the coal mine in this attack on the last vestiges of democracy in this country. We have to support them and we have to we have to demand accountability and transparency from our laughingly named justice system. And that's my report. And thank you so much, Janine Moloff. Uh, that's it for this week. My name is Brooke Hines. This is PNN. We will see you again next Sunday. <laughs>